today's scripture reading, which is Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. So, um, we've started uh, just in the last couple of weeks a, a long, what's going to be a long series on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which I'm personally excited about because I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful and anticipatory that God's going to use this series for my own formation as a child of God, and I'm hopeful that I will be a little bit more like Christ uh, in my life uh, as a result of, of going through this series and sharing it with you. Uh, but uh, a beatitude uh, is, is a beautiful word, and it also means blessing or happy. And uh, so today what we're going to talk about is the second beatitude. There are eight of them total, which, which start off the Sermon on the Mount. And this is today the spiritual practice, what we're focusing on, the spiritual practice of mourning or lament. And so um, the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his exposition of the Sermon on the Mount says that this particular beatitude, blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted, sounds utterly ridiculous to the natural heart, the natural mind. Uh, so the, the, uh, the Anglican uh, minister John Stott put it this way, what this beatitude sounds like it's saying to us is happy are those who are not happy. And that sounds a bit contradictory. And so, so before I get into what Jesus means by this, let, let me just say a couple of things about what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that we should put forth a, 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 a sort of morose, um, grumpy-looking religious exterior. There shouldn't be this sort of false Pollyanna-like piety about us. You know, blessed are those who mourn. We shouldn't equate that statement with, um, you know, the most religious and the most faithful people are the ones who are most miserable. Because the gospel is something that's also meant to bring out joy and celebration and hopefulness and thanksgiving and those sorts of things. So we're not talking about a morose, false exterior of, you know, grumpy, serious religion. That's not what we're talking about at all. We're also, on the other hand, not talking about a counterfeit joy, you know, where it says they will be comforted. We're not talking about, you know, putting on sort of a, a happy face when we're dying inside. What we're talking about is authenticity. What we're talking about is a true exhale of what's going on in our interior when we experience sickness, sorrow, pain, death, suffering, grief. And we live in a culture, don't we, that doesn't quite know what to do with, with uh, mourning, with, with external expressions, spontaneous even, expressions of sorrow. Had a similar experience recently at the YMCA. So I work out at the YMCA and, and I try to create this little introverted paradise for myself when I'm on the elliptical just to distract myself from the pain that I'm inflicting on myself. And so it's my Netflix time. Right now I'm going through the West Wing. Uh, I, I think it's Walking Dead next. Don't judge me. Um, it, I, I get it. It's, I, it. it's been recommended to me a thousand times. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the Walking Dead after, after um, West Wing. So I put on my headphones, right? And the, the, the thing that you must not do if you're working out next to me is you must not get on your phone to get business done. 
don't do that when you're working out next to me because it irritates me. And the other thing that you must not do is demonstrate by the noises that you make how hard your workout is for you. So just a few weeks ago, there's, there's a guy, a couple of ellipticals down from me with every step. Ooh, ooh, ooh. And, and so this is what I typically do when, when the loud workout guy comes in and disrupts my peace. I get on Facebook, because that's what I do. And, and I, I write a letter, an open letter to the guy next to me. <laughs> Dear man at the gym, making loud noises while you are working out, we hear you, we see you, stop. <laughs> so as soon as I hit send, along comes his trainer. He's been paralyzed, it turns out, from the waist down. And, and, and he is groaning the groan of rehabilitation. So, in the end, the problem in this scenario is not him. The problem in this scenario is me. Because I'm a product of a culture that says, keep your cool and don't cry like a baby. But what Jesus is pointing us to is this. Sometimes the best hallelujahs are the broken hallelujahs. Sometimes Christianity is meant to be lived out and sung out in a minor key. Our tears, rather than being a sign of weakness, are actually a sign of deep maturity and strength. Don't cry like a baby. I mean, let's, let's, let's think about that phrase for a minute. And let's think about what Jesus says about healthy spirituality, because Jesus says this, if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, you have to learn to cry like a baby again. You have to receive the kingdom like a little child or you'll never see it. Dependent, always expressing to your father everything that's, that's, that's in there with no filter. God does not want you to be polite with him. He does not want you to be nice with him. He wants you to be real. You know, there's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. It's written by the prophet Jeremiah, and the, the context, what's going on historically is Jerusalem is in ruins because Nebuchadnezzar and, and Babylon have come and, 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 and taken their lives away from them and, 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 and kit, essentially captivated them in a kidnapping sort of way and, and, and enslaved them in Babylon. And so into this context, Jeremiah the prophet, who's also a survivor of the destruction, says words like these, how deserted lies the city. She who was queen has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night with none to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They become her enemies. All splendor has departed. So this is what John Stott calls Christian tears. There's a certain kind of weeping that will characterize us the closer we are to Jesus. You know, Jeremiah is actually known by commentators and Bible scholars as the weeping prophet. The weeping prophet, you know, who writes 
about sickness, sorrow, and pain, and death. And what he's most grieved about, even more than the circumstances of exile, is, is the condition of, of, of the hearts of, of the people of Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem has stopped pursuing holiness and has started to become more and more like the world. They're disinterested in the Word of God, and they're, they're more interested in the accumulation of things like money, of things like power, of things like sexual experiences. And so what Jeremiah is demonstrating is something very similar that, 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 to what Jesus shows us when he, he, he weeps over the, the unrepentance, over the callousness of, uh, over sin and wickedness of Jerusalem. It says that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because of that condition of their hearts. And so what Jeremiah is showing us is the same thing that Jesus is showing us when Jesus weeps, and that is that Christian tears, as John Stott calls them, will lament worldliness. You know, the Apostle Paul grieved similarly when, when he wrote that there are many, and he said, I now tell you this even with tears, with weeping, there are many who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. That was a cause for grief for Paul. You know, and Stott prophetically, you know, asks the question, have we lost our Christian tears? And he writes this, I fear that we Christians, by making much of grace, sometimes thereby make light of sin. There's not enough sorrow for sin among us, he says. We treat wounds lightly, he's saying. We take cancer and treat it like it's a common cold. And the first, the first level of grief is over the sin that's inside of us. You know, last week I talked about, you know, the first beatitude, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And basically what Jesus is saying there in that beatitude is that the problem with the world, as far as I am concerned, is not outside of me. The chief problem with the world is inside of me. That as much as the man on the elliptical was fighting for rehabilitation of his body, I need to be engaged in a fight for the rehabilitation of my own heart and of my own soul and of my own disposition. And this starts with a, an honest self-assessment that understands that I am chiefly not a victim, I am chiefly the problem. You know, Michael Jackson put it to a lyric. Remember this one? I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. No message could have been any clearer. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and then make the change. Na, 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 na. But here's the rub on that. When we start to apply that lyric from Michael Jackson, we discover what Rich Mullins sang. We're not as strong as we think we are. We are frail and fearfully and wonderfully made. We're frail. If we're looking to Jesus chiefly to be our example rather than to be our rescue, we've missed the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, take a look at it. If the Sermon on the Mount is looked at chiefly as, as your ethical marching orders, 
It's saying this to us. Don't ever be angry with anyone or else you will be a murderer. Don't ever lust for somebody or else you'll be a murderer. Don't ever divorce a spouse for any, any reason except for sexual unfaithfulness. And Paul qualifies that in Corinth. That's another sermon for later in the series. You know, always keep your promises. Never break one. Let your word be your bond and so on. Don't ever be anxious about anything. Don't ever be afraid. Love your enemies as much as you love yourself. When people say all kinds of false and evil and cruel things about you, pray for them and bless them. Do we see how impossible this is? You know, the more honest we are, the more honest we are in our reading of, of, of teaching like what this sermon puts in front of us, the more crushed we will be. I mean, remember Isaiah, the prophet? Isaiah chapter 6 talks about his, his first sort of face-to-face encounter with God. This is the man with the purest mouth in all of Israel, and, and the only thing that he can think to say when, when he gets a vision of the holiness and purity and beauty of God is, woe is me. A lament, mourning, woe is me because I'm a man of unclean lips. He's got the purest lips of any, he's a prophet of God, the purest lips that there are to be had in the nation of Israel, and yet he goes first for the best part of him and understands even the best part of me is unclean. You know, Thomas Cranmer in the, uh, the Book of Common Prayer um, wrote a confession for the church worldwide to use. And we, we, we stumble across this prayer every now and then in our community because we use the Book of Common Prayer in our liturgy oftentimes. But here's what it says. We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. Oh, I mean, acknowledge. Yeah, of course. I'm a sinner. Yep, right. Confession. I'm with you. All sin, falling short of the glory of God. Agree with that. It's good theology right there. No. What he's saying is, come and mourn with me for a while. Not chiefly about the conditions outside of you, but, but the condition inside of you. Come and mourn with me a while. Jesus, our Lord, is crucified, and he's crucified because of me. You know, Shakespeare and Julius Caesar summed it up when he said, The fault, dear Brutus is not in our stars, but in ourselves. And some of us may say, well, that's precisely why I am not a Christian and never will be one. All this sin talk. You know, I mean, cut people some slack. Why don't you? This is why I don't regard the Bible as a legitimate document. I see it as culturally regressive, as yesterday, as, as from another time and another place, as primitive and irrelevant because of all this sin talk. Cut the human race some slack. And, and we say it, don't we, to err as human. To err as human. But here's a question that, that, that I think we should seriously grapple with. Is that a true statement? To err is human. Is that true? Or is it just our attempt, our feeble, frail, fearful attempt to silence heaven's groan for our rehabilitation? Is it our way of putting the headphones on and dialing the volume up so we don't have to listen to reality? 
Because if we really believe that to err is human, then why are we so defensive? Why can't we let criticism just roll off our back? Yep, you got me on that, and you don't know the half of it. Let me tell you four other things that that are wrong about me. Yep, to err is human, guilty as charged. How many of us respond to critique in that way? No, we're terrified by critique. We're terrified by, you know, email subject lines that say, can we talk? Before we even read what's in the email, we're terrified by it. And why are we so hard on ourselves? Why are we so driven? Why do we put so much pressure on ourselves to to succeed, to achieve, to win? You know, the truth about the perfectionist in us is this. It's not that we're being too hard on ourselves. It's that we're being too realistic. We're made in the image of a God who is perfect, who lives in unapproachable light, whose eyes are too pure to look on evil, let alone to perpetrate it. We're made in His likeness, and so, of course, any flaw that we see in ourselves if we're honest about it, will lead to a groan. You know, January 1st is going to come around in a, in a few weeks, and probably most of us are going to say to ourselves like we do every year, I'm going to turn over a new leaf, and this is going to be the year. I'm going to eat differently this time. I'm going to, I'm going to exercise differently this time. I'm going, to, I'm going to be nicer to people. But then Rich Mullins starts ringing in the ear again. We are not as strong as we think we are. So I I, I went onto Amazon to see how many books there are under the self-help category. And and as of this morning, 861,000 books on self-help. It's the biggest section in, in just about any American bookstore. We're driven to improve. We're driven by this sense of dissatisfaction about who we are and where we are in life. And so we talk about turning over a new leaf and we, we look for the best, you know, most recent self-help book because instinctively we know that we're not what we're supposed to be. And this ambition to, to be something better than what we see in the mirror is actually a good thing. It's actually a sign of God in our lives. But it also becomes a cause for mourning when we realize we're, we're, we're never going to reach the precipice no matter how hard we try. Healthy spirituality is real about these things. But then Jesus says, once we get to that place of mourning over the fact that the fault is not in our stars but in ourselves, it becomes to us a path of comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says, for they shall be comforted. In other words, this tear weeping God who weeps over Jerusalem is also a tear-wiping God and and, and the God who gives all comfort. So I love 2 Corinthians because 2 Corinthians is Paul's follow-up on 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is one of the harshest letters in the whole Bible. That love chapter that you had in your wedding ceremony, it was actually written as a rebuke. It It was a list of everything that the Corinthians were not. It's not to say you can't use it in a wedding. It it still does paint a a perfect ideal of what love is. But we have to understand that that, that the whole context of 1 Corinthians was to rebuke a jacked-up church for being as jacked up as they were. But 2 Corinthians is the letter of comfort that starts this way, Blessed be the God 
and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort in which, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What he's saying is this, the fault that is clearly in us, that is in ourselves, does not define us in Christ. There is no scarlet letter to carry around with us inside the family of God, no matter how broken our history, no matter how deep our regrets. So that the context of, of 1 Corinthians includes Paul saying sharp words to the whole community at Corinth because there is a man in the church professing to identify with Jesus Christ who's in an adulterous relationship with his stepmother. And so what Paul does is he rebuffs the entire community for affirming this way of life. You're treating wounds lightly. You're treating, you're treating cancer as if it were the common cold. If you love this man, Paul essentially says to them in 1 Corinthians, if you love this man, you will fight for his heart by opposing the way that he's living his life, the way that he's contradicting the ethics of grace, the way that he is contradicting the signs of the kingdom, which includes sexual purity, respect for another man's wife, respect for one's own body, which is owned by God. If you really loved this man, you would fight for his heart by intervening in the same way you would any kind of addict. You know, Becky Pippert says this. She says, we take pride. We give ourselves a lot of credit. We take pride in our tolerance of the sins of others because we're grace people. But she says, love actually detests. It mourns whatever destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunk, the liar, the traitor. Anger, lament, mourning is not the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. And the final form of hatred is indifference. But here's what's beautiful. Paul circles back in 2 Corinthians. And it turns out that, that as Paul is writing this letter, news has traveled to Paul that this man has responded to the intervention. And, and now he's apparently loathing himself. And, and in a place of not just mourning, but, but, but despair. And so Paul's message now in 2 Corinthians is, you fought for his heart before by intervening. Now you fight for his heart by opposing his shame, by intervening there, by ripping that scarlet letter off. You're, you're allowing him to carry that scarlet letter. Don't allow him to carry the scarlet letter because there's no shame left for a child of God. And he says in chapter 2, turn and forgive him. And comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. Reverse the negative verdict. Undo the shame with the message of the gospel, with the table of grace. 
You know, before you intervened as you should have, now encourage him fiercely. Speak words that will make his soul stronger. Speak words that convince him that he is not the sum of his mistakes and worst choices, that he is a beloved son of God, and that's what he is. And, you know, we might ask the question, you know, why not just live and let live? Why disturb the peace with all this accountability on the one hand, and why draw so much attention to the past with all of this grace talk on the other hand? It's because we need each other to be the voice of Jesus, because we have amnesia. You know, Luther said, you know, Luther was criticized for preaching the gospel every single week when he got up before his parishioners, and somebody said, why do you preach the gospel to us all the time? He says, because you forget the gospel all the time. And I forget the gospel all the time. Part of why God has positioned ourselves in one another's lives is so that we will hear the gospel over and over and over from one another. There's no peace without groaning. No peace without the groan. You know, Isaiah, you know, when he talks about his unclean lips, right after that, God sends an angel with a a coal from the altar, and he touches Isaiah's lips and says, do not fear, most repeated command in the Bible, do not fear, because this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin has been atoned for. And so from this same Isaiah, here we get in chapter 53, a fuller picture of how and by whom this guilt is removed and atoned for. In Isaiah chapter 53, take off your shoes, if you will, because the reading of this kind of text makes the ground that we're standing on holy. No majesty or beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the punishment that brought us peace with God was laid on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. You hear that? Jesus groaning for our rehabilitation. Jesus groaning to lift us up and strengthen us out of our own disability. There's no peace without groaning. There's also no redemption without a cross. You know, the reason why Jesus got up there, the reason why the Son of God's joy became the Son of God's mourning is because He is, here's the wild Here's the wild part of this whole thing. Here's the comfort. He esteems those who esteem him not. So much that that, that he would, though he's rich, become poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. So, famous story of the Duke of Windsor decides, you know, falls in love with an American divorcee, asks her to marry him, and then his friends and family come and say, no, don't do this, because... For, for, for a duke to marry an American commoner, especially a divorcee, was to relinquish your royal status. It was to, to relinquish all of your resources, all of your privilege, all of your assets. And his friends and family were saying, are you crazy? Are you nuts? Are you out of your mind? And his, his answer to all of these voices was this, you don't know her like I do. 
So here's the twist with the gospel. It seems absolutely foolish for Jesus to love, himself, love us in the way that he does, to, to, to marry us and wed his, uh, us and betroth us to himself in the way that he has and, and give up everything just to have us. But maybe it's because we don't know us like he knows us. Maybe it's because in, in his eyes, though, though he sees the caterpillar, he's envisioning the butterfly, the, though, though he sees the, the cracked seed, he's envisioning the, 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 the tree and the, the orchard that he is going to, to make us into. He's envisioning that one day the Sermon on the Mount, rather than being an impossible standard, will actually become a description more and more of the way that we live our lives. Because there is no new leaf without a new life, and there is no new life without a love that will not let you go, without a love that's stronger than death, without a love that's willing to make himself nothing so that we can possess everything. You know, next sermon is how the meek will inherit the earth. Unbelievable paradoxes in, in these Beatitudes. But when you discover that he treasures you this much, that the value on your head, it's, it's more than Picasso's woman in blue that sold for $105 million. It's, it's more than that. Liquidated everything. Because you are his treasure. When this gets inside of us, when this gets inside of us, we're no, more, we're no longer casual about confession. We're no longer flippant about the table. Instead, we're struck with wonder and awe. Will you pray with me?